This is the Pro-America Report on The Answer San Diego. Welcome, welcome, welcome. It's Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. Great to be with you. We've got a lot to cover. I I have to ask you, if you're listening to this and you're a regular listener of the Pro-America Report, one thing I love is talking to authors. Later this week, I'm going to talk with Liz Wheeler. Uh, later in this program, I think I'm going to visit with Todd Benzman, who's written the book Overrun. Uh, Jeffrey Stevens, Jeffrey Stevens, who is an author, a, a published author. I think his background is as an attorney. Uh, that happens pretty frequently. A lot of times, if you're a, a good attorney, you're a good writer. And he has written a series of novels. Um, the newest of the Jeffrey Stevens novels is called The Handler, The Handler. And I'm going to talk with him about that. It's a novel, uh, like a spy novel. Uh, I'm going to try to finish it first because I've been to talk with him later in the week. But I love talking to authors. I don't know if you love that, but I love doing that. I love 10 minute interview with an author. You can get to something good, make them think and uh, hopefully get people thinking and talking about the book. So uh, I hope you enjoy those and go over to ProAmericaReport.com and you can see all those great interviews I do. Um and you can sign up for the daily email. The daily email is called the daily wink. What you need to know, the wink, go over there and check it out. Um, and here we do. So the daily wink, sorry, let me say the daily wink is a couple of links, a couple of stories, a couple links to stories, sometimes a couple of stories. And then one point, one point, what you need to know for the day. And it's really fun to put together. So there you have it. And on this segment, I often do a what you need to know. Sometimes it's different. Sometimes it tracks with that. In fact, I'd say more often than not, it's different because different time of the day. It's what you need to know right now. And today, what you need to know is we're missing something really big. And I'm going to start talking about it. And I'm going to hope that it takes off. And it is this. We have in the last Decades, series, last sets of decades, the last uh, three, four, five, six, certainly seven decades, very specific experiences as a nation, American nation, that we should learn from, that we should study, that we should understand. There's lots of them. There's some that are on the economy. Now there's some on policy. There's some on all kinds of topics. But one of them is the experience of the threat of communism to America. After World War II, the Soviet Union set up a communist nation, and they ran it as a communist nation. You can call it corrupt. You can call it uh, an oligarchy. You can call it whatever you want. But it was motivated by, and it was informed by, communism, world communism. That's the facts, Jack. That's a fact, Jack. And after the, the fall of the Soviet Union, we have learned an immense amount. So since the late 1980s and early 1990s, and then probably in through the 90s when things were declassified, we learned exactly how what the what the contours of the relationship, the battle between in the Cold War between America and the world communist Soviet Union. We see very clearly that the communist nation was not benign, was not uh, benign in its opposition to America, and, and that's obvious, but it also wasn't passive. It was aggressive in its opposition. It included spying in huge ways. It included infiltration in huge ways. It included the promotion of corruption in big ways. It included a sets series of strategies. Let's say that better. Uh, it, it included a couple of strategies and Lots and lots of tactics. 
And so you get a guy like Dr. Paul Kengor, who's over at Grove City College up near Pittsburgh. And Kengor has written a series of books on who the dupes were, people that were dupes of the Soviets. They were not participants in the same way that the Communist Party members were, but they were dupes. And some were willing dupes and some were not willing and some were uh, willful and knowledgeable and others weren't. Which brings us all the way to Oppenheimer, this movie. I haven't seen it yet, but there's now a discussion going on generally that Oppenheimer, who lost his security clearance in 1953, he was the guy that supervised the Manhattan Project, which developed the atomic bomb. And the Soviets got that technology really quickly. And they got it through lots of spies. I don't think anyone says that Oppenheimer was the spy that delivered that technology. But what I think you can say at this point was there was lots of people that thought it was okay to be sympathetic to the Soviet Union because, well, you know, if he could, he described himself as a fellow traveler, Oppenheimer, and that there are lots of people that vilified McCarthy. Joseph McCarthy, the senator from Wisconsin, saying that he was way over the top about the threats of communism in the government. And it's pretty clear whether his specific allegations were true or not. The overall point was that America was infiltrated, penetrated and dominated in many ways by Soviet communist spies, by Soviet communist influence that decimated our ranks in the State Department, in law enforcement, in university life. And there were lots of people that may have said, well, I'm not a I'm not a communist spy. I'm not giving them, but that they were dupes and that they were brought it bringing along the systems of the Soviets into America, which brings us to today we need a new mccarthyism i'm not joking they try to make mccarthy into a completely uh uh odious figure he had some conduct that was troubling mostly alcohol related i think but i'm no expert but his insight into the threat of world communism in the soviet union was right on right on and It is simply true at this moment in our American history that the communist Chinese regime is threatening the country. And to think that they are not employing every single tactic that the Soviets used and a lot more is totally naive. The communist Chinese have shown themselves, by contrast to the Soviet communists, the communist Chinese are much more patient They're much more subtle. It's probably cultural, but it also may be just uh, pedagogical. They've learned the lesson they saw the Soviets do. And the communist Chinese are clearly infiltrating America. Go to the universities. Go to the higher education or uh, the related fields to higher education, science and technology. Go to the government. Go to the community. You cannot come to America if you're a communist Chinese member and be benign. I'm being serious. You can come and be nice. You can come and say nice things. But the system that the communist Chinese are doing means you can't come and be benign. You cannot. Now, you can say, well, a lot of these people, a lot of people that come to Chinese communists, they come to America, they flee and they become citizens. There are some dissidents. I think the Fulong Gong adherents are some of them. I think there are some dissidents that flee. 
and they have a specific reason to be away from the communist Chinese regime. And I think there are some who come and maybe they say, I want to be here. I want to be here and be part of America differently. But I don't think that's most. I just don't. Not if you know history. Not if you've looked at the Soviet 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 communists and you go one after another in examples of the reality of what the Chinese regime, the communist Chinese regime that wants to get rid of, that wants to get rid of any nation or system that believes in God. The only God in communism is the state. And there was coverage over the weekend of 100-year-old Henry Kissinger flying on a private plane, I assume, into China to visit the communist regime and to be talking about what, I don't know, he's 100 years old. But he is someone who has constantly been saying that we should be friendly with the Chinese. He was doing that with the Soviets, by the way. And it's a, it is, as Lee Smith tweeted about this, it's an elite info op of the U.S. and the communist Chinese regime. It's an elite info op of the the regimes in America and in China that want that to be what happened. And here's what he says. It is going to lead to a war. It's going to lead to a war. He says, actually, Lee Smith actually says, we're at war. And he says, but it's going to lead to a hot war, he thinks. I mean, he says. But no matter how you look at it, what needs to be said more clearly not less clearly, more emphatically, not less emphatically. It needs to be shouted from the mountaintops, from the rooftops. It needs to be this. The communist Chinese regime is doing as much as the Soviet communists, we for sure. And everything that I see and others see makes you say they're doing a lot more. Are we going to get serious? doesn't look like we're serious. It doesn't look like we're serious at all. It looks like we're losing the country. It looks like we're losing our country and losing the, what do you call it, Cold War, this soft war with China, the Chinese regime. Shame on Kissinger. Shame on all these people that aren't taking seriously the idea that among us, amidst us, are communist agents at every turn. We need a new McCarthyism. We really do. A serious one. All right, we got to take a break. We'll be right back. We got uh, Benzman and uh, a lot more. Be right back. Ed Martin here on a Pro America Report. Back in. Welcome back. Welcome back. Ed Martin here on a Pro America Report. I've been telling you all for a while. We've talked a number of times in the last few months. Uh, the Thomas More Society has been getting more and more momentum, I think is the right word in, in this uh, context. Uh, they, of course, are uh, out there as a non, not-for-profit law firm that is uh, out there fighting for all the good causes in the law, uh, respect for um, uh, life and family, religious liberty, election integrity. ThomasMoreSociety.org is the best uh, place to go and check out all their stuff. So our guest today is uh, one of their senior counsels. Uh, Thomas Breath is a Thomas More Society special counsel, and he has been helping up in Pennsylvania some parents, so many places where parents' rights are at stake and parents are saying, what can I do for my kids? And they got to have some help. And so that's one of the things Thomas More Society is doing. And so uh, welcome, first of all, uh, uh, Mr. Breath, and tell us, please, what's going on up in Pennsylvania? Ed, thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure. In Pennsylvania... A group of parents 
have formed together to create a foundation, and we've got individual plaintiff parents and students. They fought a federal lawsuit against the state college area school district, alleging freedom of exercise, First Amendment violations, as well as equal protection, 14th Amendment violations, because the state college area school district permits homeschool students and charter school students to fully participate in their extracurricular and co-curricular educational activities. Well, at the same time, they've refused to permit parochial school students hmm. the right to participate in those activities. So, um, it, 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 and saying it clearly here, um, if you're if you're a homeschooler, and let's say, and sometimes a homeschool association's got a hundred kids, and they and they set up in the and the and the and then the local school district will say, hey, we well, you can come do extracurriculars, you can be in the play, you can be uh in uh, on the newspaper, you can do different things, even sports. Sometimes that's a little clunkier, I believe. But in this case, because they're at the Catholic school, the school district saying, no, we'll take the homeschoolers. The kids look a lot alike, by the way. I mean, <laughs> they sort of overlap in kidness. But we're not taking the parochial school. Do they give a reason for that? Is there a stated reason or is that part of the problem? Uh, pursuant to a, an email that one of the plaintiffs received from the superintendent, there were two reasons that were provided. The first reason was that the State College Board of School Directors, the administration believes that they have enough students that are enrolled in hmm. the State College Area School District to meet their needs as it relates to these activities. Secondly, they indicated that if they were to permit parochial school students the right to participate, they may take the spots of some of the state college area school district students. I'm assuming that they're referring to athletics or other types of activities that that there is a, a tryout or a competition to make the team, if you would. I see. So um, on the law, it seems pretty clear that the case is that you, nowadays and, and maybe you can talk about the broader national and, and federal context uh, of of uh, the law on protection. It seems pretty clear these families, these parents have a pretty good case. Well, I, the, I'll give you the, the simplest uh, analogy. If if you're a homeschool parent uh, or a parent that's thinking about homeschooling your child because you want to further your child's religious foundation, religious beliefs of the family, you can homeschool your your son or daughter, instill those religious values, and still have the right to fully participate um, in the state college area school district extracurricular, co-curricular educational activities. But if you're that same parent and you decide, I don't want to homeschool my child, I want to send them to a parochial school, you're excluded from participating in those activities. Hmm. It's It's pretty widespread through the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, I hate to say, that a majority of the 500 school districts, I think, have a very similar policy and practice to the state college area school district, and that is to exclude parochial school students. There are some that, that do permit because the board of school directors does have the authority in Pennsylvania to permit parochial school students. There's no law that prohibits them. It's a decision that they make on a case-by-case basis, school district to school district. So we were we were at one point hopeful that the state college board of school directors would make that decision and say, we're going to provide all students. If if we're going to provide homeschool students and charter school students access, we're going to provide all students that live. And it's important to emphasize, these are families that they're residents of the state college area school district. The parents pay taxes, school right. taxes, to the state college area school district. Right. And in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, those taxes are substantial. 
So in all other material manner, these parents and students are the same as the parents and students that are enrolled in the state college area school district that educate their kids through a homeschool program or enrolled in a charter school program. The only difference is these parents have decided to pursue their religious beliefs and attempt to further those religious beliefs in their children by sending them to parochial schools. Uh, Thomas Breath is our guest, a uh, special counsel with the Thomas More Society, thomasmoresociety.org. You can learn more about it. It's a non-for-profit law, non, non-profit law firm, the do-gooders that has spent a lot of time. A lot of the lawyers are not, that's not at all their full-time job. They they participate in these because they believe in these cases. And sounds, Thomas, you're one of those um, that, it, Thomas, is the best solution, the best solution for the parents is if they give in. The state school, the state, the, 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 the school district here where they are say, come on in. And, and as you mentioned, that is possible to do is is there a, a sense though that you're saying to yourselves if you won't do that we're gonna we think there's an argument that's going to have broader applicability in pennsylvania but maybe in other parts of the country too in terms of what the federal protections are or aren't right correct there are cases there is one other case uh, in pennsylvania a federal court case where the plaintiffs prevailed on this topic. It's not in the middle district. It's in the Western district of Pennsylvania. There are cases throughout this country where these types of cases are being argued. We're unaware of a specific United States Supreme Court case that deals specifically with the issue of the fact pattern we have here where homeschool students and charter school students are permitted, but parochial school students aren't. This is really a U.S. constitutional issue as well as a Pennsylvania constitutional issue that these school districts throughout this country are permitting different levels of uh, participation based upon different classifications. And that's creating a discriminatory environment, particularly, uh, unfortunately, in our country, there's so many discriminatory conduct towards religious beliefs and the furtherance of and the expression of your religious beliefs. So we're hoping that this is the first in many battles that we hopefully prevail on, just furthering the religious rights as protected by the U.S. Constitution, the Pennsylvania Constitution. Uh, Thomas Breath is our guest. Uh, Just a couple more minutes. Um, Broadly speaking, if I can pull out to that, and you may have experience with uh, yourself or maybe uh, at the Thomas More Society with your colleagues, is there is there more energy among parents? It feels like parents are energetic and in, in fighting back in other ways. Is there more in these, you know, helping run uh, school board candidates and uh, worrying about, um, you know, kind of, uh, tra- uh, you know, uh, transvestite? I think I'm not allowed to say that, but transgender story hour and all that. But in these kind of specific fights over, hey, wait a second, I I want to I want to live where I live. I love living in this part of Pennsylvania, but I want uh, access to this public school system in a way that. Uh, um, I, that I want and I pay taxes. Is that is that growing? I, I know there's a core that have been there fighting these things, but it, do you feel like I keep hoping that the parental rights movement is is strengthening and, and, and deepening? It's it's sometimes tough. Parents are busy and stressed out. I think it's absolutely growing. Um, the parents that, that we speak to on a regular basis and and obviously anytime we file uh, litigation of this nature, um, we do with the with the generosity of the Thomas More Society. It can't be done without the Thomas More Society. But we hear from uh, parents um, across Pennsylvania, um, outside of Pennsylvania, that that say, "Listen, thank heavens you're fighting these cases because this is happening to my son or daughter. I don't believe it's correct." Um, there, the education system in our country right now is is open to so many um, diverse. Um, 
perspectives. And the state college school district has a policy that says that it will treat all students equal. Um, and it goes through a long litany of classifications of students that they profess uh, to treat equally. Uh, that's fine. We're, we yeah. support that. We think that's wonderful. We believe that all students should be treated equal. Unfortunately, though the words come out of their mouth, in practice, they've decided to not treat parochial school students equally. Mm-hmm. They've decided to discriminate against them. Well, there you have it. Such an important set of uh, stories that are happening across the country uh, when it comes to the parental rights and uh, parents is uh, demanding that they have the ability to get what they think their kids needs are and how they match up as opposed to uh, these uh, bureaucrats. And I I really do think that we're going to see more and more of, of the folks who are pushing around parents paying a price, paying a price in terms of the politics, but more importantly, in terms of the law. And so uh, that's exciting. And uh, thank you to uh, Thomas Breath of the uh, Thomas More Society for coming on. Tom- ThomasMoreSociety.org is how you track that down. We will take a break and we'll be right back. It's Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. Back in a moment. Welcome back. Welcome back. Ed Martin here on a Pro-America Report. Our, our friend Todd Benzman is with us. ToddBenzman.com is the best place to see all of his stuff. He is a senior national security fellow over at the Center for Immigration Studies. Uh, he is an investigative journalist by training, among other things. And uh, he is also uh, has worked in and out of public service, uh, as well as uh, being an analyst and others. So uh, welcome back, Todd. Uh, first of all, um, what's the status down there at the border? I mean, we got some coverage in the last few weeks. I haven't talked to you in about a week or so. Uh, what's going on down there? What's the <clears throat> well, let me start two ways. One, what's the coverage like? Is anybody seriously covering it? And uh, I always think in the summer, is it uh, is it slowing down because it's so dangerous? Well, in terms of coverage, first, I would say that there is a since the last time you and I talked, a, a pretty significant upsurge in media coverage. You, almost all of it negative, uh, attacking the Texas Department of Public Safety and Greg Abbott. Mm. For all of the uh, uh, the new uh, fortifications and the water barrier, the marine barrier, and all the barbed wire, and there seems to be a gathering uh, storm of opposition to try to um, litigate or def- politically defeat what Abbott is doing in Texas down there. Um, there was uh, reporting in the Houston Chronicle that you know. Uh, the Texans had placed underwater razor wire uh, traps to cut immigrants as they crossed. And then other reports that Texas troopers were just uh, pushing children into the river and, you know, mothers with babies and that sort of thing. Um, just the kind of, and that has just gotten a tremendous amount of coverage in the liberal media, the, in the mainstream media and the, which is one and the same, I think, huh. Um, and then another uh, development was that the Biden administration gave Abbott three days to get rid of the to to give an answer on whether they would get rid of the marine barrier thousand mm-hmm. feet of it that they put in there. Abbott has responded this morning. This is Monday as we speak. Uh, no, where the marine barrier stays, all of it stays. We're not changing anything. Um, the Texas officials that I talk to who are in the know on all this 
flat out deny anything about the water traps, that there's no razor wire submerged that you can't see. None of that's true. Um, nobody's pushing anybody into the river. They're just blocking them or denying water or any of that stuff. Uh, they're just denying that it's true and they're staying the course. That's where I mean, we are. If there was razor wire, wouldn't we have one picture of it? I mean, I, I look, it's a horrendous allegation, but it's one of these things where wouldn't we have one picture of of a of an innocent of a person, uh, so-called innocent, you know, who was cut up to pieces by the the wire? I mean, I, I just it feels to me like the the most egregious version of, you know, when did you stop eating your wife? You have to prove that you didn't use razor wire. I mean, that'd be a crime against almost every convention. Well, my he right exactly. Um, you know, first of all, I I don't believe at this point that that any of the allegations are true. But it, truth truth doesn't really matter in situations like this. Uh, just perception and media coverage and political, uh, you know, kind of partisanship. Yeah, one ups, one ups, one upsmanship. Yeah, narratives yeah. to try to, to try to get. It's all designed to try to get you know the offender. In this case, it's Texas to stop fortifying to mm-hmm. open it all up to you know put it back the way it was where everybody can kind of get through and my experience with this especially with the trump wall during the controversies where he was trying to build the wall is you know that they would say it doesn't work it's mean people are dying on it uh that sort of thing as a way to get it to be halted right but the people that are the noisiest i find about that are usually the ones who I believe in the heart of hearts understand that it's effective. Mm. <laughs> and so otherwise, you know, if they really believe that it wasn't working, they would just shut up and smirk mm-hmm. and go home, you know, but the, the, the noise over this Marine barrier and all these Texas fortifications tells me that it's all highly effective, mm. uh, that it would work, that it is slowing things down, that it's a problem for, uh, unimpeded mass immigration. And so this is actually, uh, this is a weird thing to say, but I, I see this as a, as a positive sign, uh, oh, all of this opposition because they know that it works. Uh, we're talking with Todd Benzman again, Todd is where you can go and see all of his stuff. Uh, he's a senior national security fellow at the center for immigration studies, his book overrun how Joe Biden unleashed the greatest border crisis in us history is available. It's been out for a few months, a uh, very popular and uh, useful uh, bombardier books, a uh, division of post Hill press uh, is the publisher. Um, Todd, I'm my second question. It is the summer. It's hot all over the country, but it's certainly hot in Texas. I haven't seen the terrible, horrendous, um, story yet of uh of you know a, a half a dozen or a dozen or sometimes more than that people trapped in a in a truck that get uh you know uh either get killed or, or really hurt from uh heat exhaustion in the heat but is it does that slow things down at all just as a matter of forget about the the sovereignty of the country people not dying does it slow it down because it's so hot yeah usually you know the summer months are um slower than other months now during the biden border crisis the summer months were, you know, bigger than any other summer months ever in mm. history. I see. It didn't matter because they were being they were being allowed in. Right. Uh, so, you know, they were just they couldn't afford to miss the opportunity. You know, let's get in while we can. Um, I think, though, that uh, because of of another program called CBP one, where they're bringing them in over the border, uh, over the bridges and flying them in through airports that probably fewer people need to cross 
uh, illegally on land. I see. Uh, when they when they come through, I mean, there's there's a great video out there by uh, the journalist Bur- Ben Burkwam uh, from two days ago in in Tijuana, mm-hmm. and he got a shot of just hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of immigrants just walking up the 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 port of entry gangplank to the bridge and you know it's all covered from the sun and it's you know there's water and everything that anybody needs and they're letting them in that way so i think that you know just as many people are crossing in but they're just doing it under the shade of bridge awnings Hmm. and through buildings that are air-conditioned uh, Todd Benzman's our guest again. Uh, Todd, what's next? Is there upcoming uh, I- I- events or timing that will be uh, a trigger for either attention or for changes? What do you see coming in the next month or two? Well, I think things are going to just be the status quo. If anything, the administration is going to continue to lift to raise the the caps on the number of people being brought in under CBP-1 as the administration expands its own infrastructure, its own capacity to, um, you know, process these people in through the ports of entry, they will raise the cap. Uh, I don't, they've never really said we'll never raise it beyond this cap. They're just raising it as their capacity to process increases. So I think we will see a lot, more of those increases month to month to month. Uh, every month they seem to add a few hundred more uh, a month and to the cap. So uh, I think we'll just kind of see the status quo. We'll probably see an increase in family groups crossing through Del Rio and Tucson sector uh, because they're just being let in anyway. They don't have to wait in line. It's cheaper and easier. They get the same benefits pretty much if they just cross illegally. So we ought to start seeing more of that, especially as the weather cools. Uh, do you and, do you do you expect? Um, is there is there a date a, a reporting date where there's going to be something you can point to again and say, look at the numbers? Is that coming in the early September? Uh, excuse me, early August in a few weeks. Uh, yeah, we. I mean, we should see the July numbers uh, come out. Uh, so yeah, I mean, every month the, the you know they put out new numbers about maybe two or three weeks lagging from the pri- for the prior uh, month. And again, you know, we'll see the administration crow about maybe declining numbers uh, coming through illegally, but not saying anything about the increase of the same percentage Mm. being brought in under CBP one over bridges. It's amazing. It's amazing. I think I think that the um, I, I was watching the media reporting. And the media reporting just parroted that exact line. That line, yeah. Numbers are yep. way down. They know that. So they, they know. They know. They're. They know their talking points. Um. Yes, all right, Todd. Do. Todd. Todd Benzman. I got to run. I'm on uh, a stop. Uh, Todd Benzman, as always, uh, so helpful. Toddbenzman.com. Check it out. There, his book, Overrun, a must have. Uh, we got to take a quick break. We'll be right back. Ed Martin here on the Pro America Report. Back in a moment. This is the Phyllis Schlafly Report, a daily broadcast from Phyllis Schlafly Eagles. And we're upholding the legacy of Phyllis Schlafly, grassroots activist, author of 27 books, and articulate voice for traditional values for more than 70 years. Now, here's the president of Phyllis Schlafly Eagles, Ed Martin. Transportation Secretary Pete, I like trains, Buttigieg, has unveiled what he considers to be a bold new plan to fight gender inequality. Namely, he wants to spend $20 million of your money 
to create female crash test dummies. There's surely no shortage of jokes to be told about the abundance of dummies in Washington. However, this is a very serious contradiction of values by the left that needs to be addressed. It's absolutely true that the bodies of men and women react differently to automobile crashes. You will not be shocked to hear that some studies indicate that women are 73% more likely to be injured in crashes than men, and as much as 28% more likely to be killed. The reason for this has nothing to do with sexism and everything to do with biology. On average, men have more bone density and muscle mass. Unless you reside in the ivory towers of academia or the swamps of Washington, D.C., I'm sure you already know this. However, the hypocrisy comes in when the same administration that acknowledges the biological distinctions of men and women in vehicle crashes refuses to acknowledge these distinctions when it comes to other matters of public policy. Allowing men to compete in women's sports under the guise of transgenderism does not comport with this new female dummy initiative. Those same biological differences which make women more likely to be injured in a car crash also put them at a severe disadvantage on the track, on the court, or in the field. Why does Pete Buttigieg care more about female crash test dummies than he does about actual girls who lose out on the chance to compete fairly in their favorite sports and who sometimes sustain great injury as a result? This is not a rhetorical question. The answer couldn't be any clearer or greener. It all comes down to money. If Mayor Pete thinks he can get another $20 million out of Congress, he's all too willing to acknowledge the differences between men and women. But when the LGBT lobby comes calling, biological distinctions between men and women are something only a dummy would talk about. Thanks for listening to the Phyllis Schlafly Report. You'll be glad to know the legacy of Phyllis Schlafly continues. Upheld by Ed Martin, president of Phyllis Schlafly Eagles, Chairman Helen Marie Taylor, Treasurer John Schlafly, a full staff in St. Louis in our nation's capital, and thousands of citizen volunteers, her eagles, across the country. You can be part of that legacy at phyllisschlafly.com. That's phyllisschlafly.com. Welcome back. Welcome back. Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. Hey, uh, let me finish out today's program with a little bit of a a reminder or a walk down memory lane or whatever you call it. One of the great things of my childhood was that my grandfather taught me to appreciate and love to watch baseball on TV. Now, I grew up in New Jersey, and he was a Yankees fan, and I became a Yankees fan. And I used to watch the games when I was six, seven, eight, nine, ten years old, and I would sit in front of the TV or lay down. I remember laying down in front of my on my belly, and I would watch it, and I'd have a baseball, uh, a, a Yankees batting helmet, and I'd put that on when they were up and maybe a batting glove. And then when they were field, I'd put my glove on and my hat and back and forth. And we lo- I loved watching baseball. And I loved watching baseball with my grandfather. And it was great memories. It's great, great kind of sharing of things. In fact, the first game, baseball game I went to, was a doubleheader at Yankee Stadium, a real doubleheader where they play one one game right after another, not split where you go out and come back. And it was Yankee Stadium it was the Tigers versus the Yankees. My dad took me with his brother, my uncle, and I, I don't remember the game very much, but I remember being there. But anyway, I, my grandfather, uh, who was named Phil McGonigal, Philip McGonigal, and obviously called him Grandpa, and um, he taught me how to love baseball and watch it and and understand it and all. And he died in uh, he died in when I was fifteen. And um, before that, that 
I had the great, there were great years of baseball. And one of the memories, I can remember it right now, was a Sunday day game in 1983. I, now that I know the date because it's 40 years ago uh, as of July 24th. The Yankees played the uh, Kansas City Royals, and they were great rivals at the time. And I did love, um, I did love George Brett as a hitter. He was a great hitter, and he had written a, he had been part of a book, uh, a really um, good book on hitting that he put together with Charlie Lau, who was a hitting coach for the Kansas City Royals, and had been around baseball a long time. And so um, when I when I watched this, uh, I watched that game. This is a uh, Sunday afternoon and, and the way it used to work, you didn't have tons of cable TV. So you had to have either the game of the week, which would have been on Saturday after lunch, you know, one o'clock or your own hometown team would have baseball. And so they played a Sunday, always Sunday afternoon games like they do somewhat now, never in the evening. And they'd be on the local TV. And so I remember watching that game. Anyway, uh, it was the top of the ninth inning with two outs. And Goose Gossage, who's in the Hall of Fame and was a closer for the Yankees, was pitching and he was against the Royals. And he gave up a home run to uh, George Brett. And George Brett hit this home run. And I love George Brett. I love watching him. I didn't root for him, though, because I didn't like Kansas City. And um, then Billy Martin, the famous umpire, of the uh, umpire, the famous manager of the New York Yankees came out and he protested that the bat had too much pine tar on it. It had too much pine tar on it. And what later came out was Craig Nettles, the third baseman for the Yankees, said they all knew that the bat had too much pine tar on it. And they knew it a week or two before they played the Kansas City Royals at Kansas City, but they were waiting for some time when it mattered. And so Billy Martin protested the umpire and the umpire said, yep, there's too much pine tar in the bat. Therefore, it's a violation. Therefore, the batter's out. The home runs voided and the Yankees win. And the famous scene from 1983, July 24th, was um, George Brett running out of the dugout going crazy. It was amazing. I picture I can picture it right now watching it. It was unbelievable. And George Brett was had always had a chewing tobacco, a big chaw on his cheek and was this rough character, you know, tough guy uh, and kind of like a cowboy. It was amazing. I met him years later at um, I met George Brett years later at Whitey. Well, so two George Brett stories. One, I went to work in Kansas City for a year. And I lived on Quality Hill in a in a small apartment. And across the street was a sports bar. And next to the sports bar was another bar. And so I used to go to the sports bar and eat dinner. I was single at the time. I'd eat dinner or something and sit there and watch TV, watch baseball or something. And the bartender said that George Brett and the Royals used to come to that bar next door after almost every game back in the day. And and they said they were a hard party in group. They loved to come out. And they said George, uh, George Brett was always chewing tobacco and was spitting on the floor. That was his known thing. And he was not actually a very friendly guy. But, uh, but a couple of years after that, I was in St. Louis and Whitey Herzog made the Hall of Fame. And I was invited to a celebration in uh, suburban St. Louis. And George Brett was there. And he did have a reputation for being a partier, and he had had a lot to drink when I met him. And he was really funny and a really great character and great to talk to. Um, but two things to tell you. One, when um, my grandfather died when I was 15, and it never, you know, it was like one of those pivotal moments in my life. And I never forget it where I was also watching TV, laying on the ground in my family room where I would watch baseball, but I wasn't watching baseball. I think I was watching TV. That's one thing I remember. And I always appreciated and loved that he taught me to watch baseball. But the other one was somewhat uh, maudlin. A few years later in 1989, uh, 
Billy Martin died in a car accident on Christmas Day, probably drinking. I don't think it was ever proven, um, but I think he was drinking that night. And I went to his funeral. His funeral was held in St. Patrick's Cathedral in New York City. And I went in on the train from where I grew up and I went to that. And in that St. Patrick's was packed with lots of baseball fans, but also every famous uh, uh, Yankee player and lots of other baseball players, including George Brett, which was very cool. So anyway, great baseball memory from this time of year. I hope there's lots of other things that can be memories for people. But for me, the memories of my grandfather teaching me how to watch baseball and how to care about it and to love watching it was wonderful memories and uh, and great, uh, great memory of George Brett getting thrown out of the game. Later, it was reversed, by the way. The, the call was reversed by the commissioner's office, the American League president's office, and uh, the home run counted, and, the, and the, uh, the Royals won the game. So there you have it. Good memories for the summer and for baseball. We'll be back tomorrow. Thank you, as always, to the great Noah Dingley, our producer, and also uh, Ryan Height and Mason Mohan for helping associate produce. We'll be back tomorrow. Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. Talk to you then. Pro-America Report on The Answer, San Diego.